Make up your mind. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Rob Porter on 970 WDAY and 93.1 FM. Good afternoon, Nolan. How the hell are you doing? I am doing quite well. How are you doing on this afternoon? I'm uh, doing pretty good. Got some nice weather. We're closing yeah. out uh, closing out summer. Pretty, we're doing pretty good with it. Yeah, Heading what's, what's the temperature days. out there? Uh, it's it's hot today. It's like mid nineties. Oh geez, we're only we only got about the mid eighties today. Wow. We uh and and it looks like for Labor Day we're going to be down in the the low eighties. Which ah, you're lucky. Bad. We're supposed to be in the I think we're supposed to be low seventies. Kind of windy in Labor Day, so I'm not really looking forward to that. No, I mean you want it nice. I mean you want yeah. you want Labor Day weekend to be nice. Nice way to close out summer. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the energy grid, and I know what you're thinking. Boy, is that boring, but. Listen, we have uh, a big part of politics in America over the last several years, last couple of decades, really, has been renewable energy. We have been promoting the idea of wind and solar, and the question now is, what does that mean for, what, what does that mean for the resiliency of our electrical grid? We're going to talk with Tony Clark. He's a former public service commissioner here in the state of North Dakota, a former member of the Federal Energy Regulatory Committee or Commission, excuse me. Uh, and we're going to talk with him because that used to be his job for the federal government was to regulate the power grid. And he has some thoughts about whether or not all this dependence on solar and wind is is putting us in a place where we're maybe not as resilient as we should be or or long term we're not necessarily going to be resilient because listen, the expectation for Americans is that when we turn on the light switch, the lights come on or when it gets cold in our house, the heater comes on, right? I mean, that's our expectation. Heck here up in North Dakota, you know, in, 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 in January, right in December, that's not a luxury. That's a necessity of life. So we're going to talk with him about that. It's going to be a pretty interesting discussion. All that uh, plus your phone call, 701-293-9888. Nine seven zero nine three two nine. Email talk at wday.com. Uh, meanwhile, Nolan, the uh, yesterday we were talking a little bit about uh, State Senator Tom Campbell and his very very early campaign for the United States Senate, and uh, he's already got TV ads running. I, I think it's interesting because there, there's another early announcement uh, for a congressional race. Ben Hansen, former state lawmaker from District 16 in West Fargo, announced his candidacy for the United States House seat uh, currently occupied by congressman kevin kramer uh kramer uh, by the way when i asked kramer about hansen's uh, candidacy kramer told me uh well i haven't announced if i'm running again for re-election to the house seat so uh, i guess kramer we don't know if he's running or not i i guess he's gonna run for something i guess we don't know if he's gonna run for the senator of the house but at this point ben hansen is running for the house which marks something of a departure for north dakota democrats because the last couple of cycles it's like it's been an arm-twisting contest to get somebody to jump into some of these races. They're not getting statewide candidates until, well, well after the first of the year on election year, uh, sometimes not even up until the day of their convention, right? I, I think that's happened in the last couple of cycles is like the day of the convention. We're finally figuring out who their, uh, who, who some of their statewide elected off or uh, statewide candidates are going to be. Um, so Ben Hansen jumping into the race early, I, I guess, is a sign he's pretty serious about it. It's probably a positive sign for Democrats that they finally have, uh, you know, somebody out there who's jumping in right away, and it, they don't have to look, I guess, sort of foolish or, or like they're they're trying to to coerce somebody into running in one of these races. 
but I think it's interesting because Hanson took to um, Medium, which is a, uh, I, I guess, some sort of a blogging platform on the internet. So he took to Medium, as the kids do these days, uh, and wrote a, in, I guess, a sort of essay titled very creatively, Why I'm Running for Congress. Um, and it's it, it's not a terribly interesting piece of work. I have it linked at sayanythingblog.com if you want to check it out. I think Hanson has also shared it on his social media platforms. Um, not terribly interesting. Most of it is is the sort of stuff you're used to hearing from politicians, a lot of pablum about, you know, jobs and the middle class and, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to, you know, work together and bipartisanship and all this stuff, which, which don't get me wrong. It all sounds very nice, but it's one thing to say those things. It's another thing to propose actual public policy in pursuit of those goals. I don't know about you, but I don't elect people i don't want to vote for people based on high in the pie in the sky promises i want i want to know where the rubber hits the road i want to know actual policy but anyway what's interesting is that hansen writes this whole piece and of course he gets into his background he ran for fargo park board when he was 19 at 25 years old uh he was elected as a member of the north dakota state house of representatives and he goes on i quote for four years i served as a democrat representing a burgeoning west fargo district west fargo isn't a republican or a democratic district it's a place where families and young people are finding room to grow in their lives and their careers as their representative i fought for greater transparency in our state elections consumer protections that could better meet the needs of our changing world and a pro-growth regulatory environment that would make north dakota one of the leading suppliers of good technology jobs i want to continue to represent the people of north dakota and share their stories on a national stage. Now, what I think is interesting about all that, Nolan, is nowhere is it mentioned that Ben Hansen was cast out of office by voters in 2016, just last year, just just November, less than a year ago, just months ago. Probably something he doesn't want to bring up, if I had to guess. Took fourth place in his district. He was he was out at a four, took fourth place, got the fewest number of votes in his district. Yeah. And now he's out there. I, I just, I just think it's funny because he's he's touting his record in the legislature. He was there for four years. That's one term. So basically, he got elected for one term and then was cast out of office. At what and point ta- does like, what at what point does Kevin Kramer look at Ben Hansen and say like, I can actually one hundred percent be reelected to the House of Representatives if I run for House again? I mean, he he has a. And kind of an easy decision, don't you think? Like he, yeah. he kind of. Well, I mean, assuming nobody else gets in the race, right? I mean, obviously, I mean, another Democrat get in the race. Although looking at the bench, I mean, there's just not a lot of candidates that Democrats have. I mean, they have not very many people elected. Period. Yeah. I, I mean, just, just uh, there, there's just not. I mean, usually to run for statewide office, you want somebody who's had maybe a little bit of of experience on like city council or, uh, you know, in the legislature, things like that. I just can't see Kramer. Really I just can't see Kramer taking that risk to try to run against Heidi Heitkamp when, right now, his one opponent in the yeah. House is somebody that he can probably run a, run away with the the election with. A know. lot of people. A lot of people feel that way. A, a lot of people are, are thinking that that Kramer isn't going to jump into the Senate race for exactly that reason. I mean, he's pretty much the Democrats aren't likely to get somebody. Hanson is probably just because I don't think Democrats have enough candidates where they can have competitive primaries at this point. It, you know, I. It, if they have somebody who's willing to put their name on the statewide ballot, they're going to shuffle them into an office that doesn't already have a candidate. You know, they're not going to want competitive primaries at this point. They just don't have that deep a bench of candidates. 
Uh, so, so you're right. Hanson is probably the challenger for the U.S. House seat, and he, he he's just not going to beat Kevin Kramer. I mean, absent some earth-shattering scandal that just completely takes Kramer down, nobody is going to choose Ben Hanson, who couldn't even win re-election to his District 16 House seat, couldn't even come in third place, came in fourth place in that race. Nobody thinks he's going to win on the statewide ballot. It's just not going to happen. Not in this environment. So, yeah, I mean, you, you got to think that Kramer having such a weak challenger from the Democrats for re-election to the House is thinking, why not take the sure thing instead of roll the dice and, and challenge Heidi Heitkamp, which, I mean, don't get me wrong, Kramer can make it competitive. He's a heck of a campaigner. He knows policy very, very well. He can raise a lot of money. But so can Heidi Heitkamp, and that would be a tough race. So and what does he have to know, fall back on, you know, if he, yeah. in a, if in fact he loses? Well, you know? I mean, a former member of Congress. You're, right, but it's not <laughs> that he would be. I don't, I don't think it's a choice between that or living in a cardboard box right. under a bridge somewhere. But yeah, you're right. I mean, his, his, you know, he, he would have to probably sit on the sidelines of public service for a while, and I just don't think that would be something that would make Kevin Kramer happy. I mean, he's the sort of guy, he likes to be in the fray. Yeah. He likes to be in the mix, so. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think Democrats having such a weak candidate for the House makes it more likely that Kevin Kramer is going to run again for the United States House. But we'll see. We'll see. More to come straight ahead. What do you think? 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be back right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob. Report on 970 WDAYM and 93.1 FM. 701-293-9000 if you want to join in. 888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Uh, let's see. Karen's on the line. Go ahead, Karen. What's up? Of the election that is not a presidential election normally will tend Midterm. to have the people of the other party elected, which means... Since Trump is Republican, there'd be more likely Democrats elected. And then, of course, Trump messes up all the time, so who knows how many people he's yeah. made angry. Well, he, he, I have two, two responses for that. First of all, um, typically the, the trend that you're talking about holds true for congressional races. Uh, now, the, the problem Democrats have going against them this time is, you know, like in the Senate, they have a pretty tough map to to defend. Um, you know, so it's it's I, I don't know that they can take back the Senate. Uh, anything's possible, um, but they have a pretty tough map for them. You know, as far as if you drill down in the state, you know, I, I don't think that North Dakota follows that that sort of, you know, if we're talking about legislative races or whatever. Um, I don't think that North Dakota state level offices follow that trend at all. So. You know, in, if, if Democrats, if, if North Dakota Democrats are, are relying on a sort of backlash against Donald Trump to help them win offices in the legislature or on the statewide ballot, I, I think they better not hold their breath because I don't think that there's going to be the sort of Trump backlash in North Dakota that there maybe is going to be somewhere else. There's you know, to Trump, North, North Dakota second only to West Virginia in, in terms of approval of, 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 of President Trump. So I just don't see that's going to happen. Two. Uh, I, I think the problem is that, you know, Democrats are just not it's, – it's, it's one thing to look at a trend and say, oh, well, well the president's really unpopular. That's going to be good for Democrats. The Democrats still have to put candidates on the ballot. And outside of Heidi Heitkamp, 
where are the Democrats that, that, that can win on the statewide ballot? In, in, in the last two cycles, the last two election cycles, 2014 to 2016, not a single Democrat on the statewide ballot has gotten 40% of the vote. As a matter of fact, in 2016, not a single Democrat got even 30% of the vote on the statewide ballot. So, I'm not talking about the past few elections. I'm talking about Trump having half a year to really mess up some more. And another thing is we have time to get some good candidates in there. There's a Democratic backlash right now, nationally. Now, we'll see. I'm just, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know who those candidates are going to be, Karen. I mean, it'll be interesting. I mean, maybe Democrats are going to recruit somebody surprising or somebody's going to come out of the woodwork and just get traction with something. I'm not saying it can't happen. It just... It seems unlikely at this point. Thanks for the call. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. I wrote a print column, Nolan. It's just hitting the paper. uh, I see it's on Inforum.com and and Grand Forks Herald and Jamestown Sun tickets and press. Based on the interview I had yesterday with Mark Haugen, sort of reinvigorating the NPL. And I don't know what you thought, Nolan, but I'm, I'm hearing this guy talk, and he's like, well, you know, Bernie Sanders was really popular, whatever. That, to me, just sounds completely divorced from from the reality of politics in North Dakota right now. Well, yeah. And also, I mean, he made the case that it was in the it was in the primaries that Bernie Sanders commanded North Dakota. But in the I mean, I think of it in bigger terms in the general election. I mean, I guess I don't remember what the the margin was off the top of my head, but didn't I'm pretty sure Donald Trump just swept away the North Dakota. He got almost 64 percent of the in the general election. So against Hillary Clinton. So whatever whatever Democrats did or whatever Bernie Sanders did in the primaries really doesn't hold any merit to me. I mean, it doesn't really make a difference in my view. Yeah, I I I think I think his I think his point was. North Dakota voters are more liked Bernie Sanders more than they liked Hillary Clinton because they voted for Bernie Sanders. And my argument is the the primary turnout, right? So so the Democrats who showed up at the Democratic primary in June of 2016, that was down 40 percent from 2012, yeah. like almost 40 percent from 2012. Meanwhile, the people who turned out for the Republican primary, because remember, when you vote in the June primary, you pick a Democratic ballot or a Republican ballot. Mm-hmm. Republican votes were up almost 30 percent or excuse me, I, I think like almost 25 percent. Maybe that's the number I'm, I'm pulling. I wrote about these numbers earlier. So if I'm roughly in those ballparks, though. So, I mean, here you have fewer Democrats voting and then you have more people voting on the Republican ballot. To me, that's a big crossover of Democrats to Republicans. And who's going to cross over from a Democratic ballot to a Republican ballot? It's probably going to be somebody who's pretty centrist, pretty moderate, right, who feels comfortable maybe going back and forth between the ballots from, from election cycle to election cycle. So to me, th- that's an indication that maybe Bernie Sanders won in North Dakota because the moderates left the party. I, you know, I, I think, I, you know, we, we've got this this big push and you can read my column that's out right now about how, you know, there's this push to reinvigorate the nonpartisan league in North Dakota. And it just seems completely divorced from reality, because the problem I perceive with Democrats in North Dakota is they are too far to the left. They are they are to the left of where the North Dakota electorate wants them to be. It's it's not that North Dakota voters aren't perfectly willing to vote for Democrats. Sometimes uh, you see a lot of crossover when you have like a Heidi Heitkamp and, and and a Republican candidate on the same ticket. You look at the vote totals. It's clear there's a lot of people willing to vote for both Republicans and Democrats in the state. The problem is, is most of the Democrats are left of the left. That's why Bernie Sanders 
took the took the primary, yeah. you know. Yeah. I, I mean, that's that's their problem. They, they've got to come back down. They have got to start talking about issues that matter to North Dakotans. And I can tell you, if you're going to be out there campaigning on, you know, a living wage, raising the minimum wage, if you're going to be out there campaigning on single payer health care, if you're going to be out there, you know, campaigning on identity politics, however important you may feel those issues are, they are not going to get you traction in North Dakota. That is not what North Dakota voters, what most of them anyway, care about. It's they're not priorities for them. I think what North Dakota voters want to do is they want to be able to farm their land. They want to be able to ranch their land. They want to be able to, to, to drill for minerals. We want to go to work. We're an industrial state. That's why we're different than Minnesota. That's why, frankly, in a lot of ways, we're different from South Dakota. We are an industrial state. We like to use our land. And we mostly want the government to just get the hell out of our way. And until Democrats start you know, articulating a message that can line up with that attitude, they're going to continue to lose elections. Well, that's it for me. Or not, that's not it for me. That's it for this segment. Tony Clark, former uh, public service commissioner, former member of FERC, is going to be on about our national power grid. Is our renewable energies making it less resilient than it should be? 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. This is Rob Port on 970 WDAY AM and 93.1 FM. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Report on 970 WDAY AM, 93.1 FM. Your call in numbers, of course, 701 293 9000, 888 9709 329. Email talk at WDAY.com. My guest now is Tony Clark. He was a public service commissioner for the state of North Dakota. He then went on uh, to an appointment on the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Uh, which regulates the uh, basically regulates the power grid, right, Tony? I mean, am I right in saying that that FERC regulates our, our, our national power grid? Yeah, that's fair to say. I mean, into in addition to a number of other things like right. interstate natural gas pipelines, hydroelectric facilities, and things like that. I, there, there's a big debate going on right now because I I, I think and and. In some ways, I don't want to make it out to be like a negative thing because I think a lot of people make it out like it's this negative thing. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of, you know, the, the old school power versus new power. And it's like this war. But I to me, I, I think it's more of, of just sort of the market's changing. Technology's changing. We're trying some new things. And we just have to make sure that as, as we're moving into this new phase, that, that we're keeping the right priorities. And, and so there's been this debate over the resiliency of the power grid there was just a new D, uh, report out from the department of energy talking about this this very subject and uh, my understanding of the report is that and it's sometimes i read these things and they're they're just you know i, I don't do this stuff for i am not a, i'm not a regulator by by living but i do read a lot of this <laughs> stuff and my understanding was that it's it's just we need to be careful that we're not getting rid of of baseload power from sources like nuclear power plants from sources like coal power plants that we're not doing away with these things too too quickly is that is that fair to say i mean can you give us an overview of, of what this report said yeah so the doe report was one that secretary perry uh ordered up and asked staff to to report to him several months ago and when it first came out it of course the dc spin machine hits and and folks on the environmental left were setting their hair on fire saying this is going to be the end of wind power and solar power and folks um, from coal country in Pennsylvania and Ohio and some places were saying that this 
report was going to be the the savior of every coal plant. And the, the fact is, when the report came back, which is just in, in about the last week or so, it was a very even-keeled assessment of where the market is right now, what some of the market dynamics are. Uh, and I think when folks read it, they said, hey, this is a this is a very legitimate, fact-intensive report. And what it basically came to the conclusion of was the market dynamics are changing a lot, and it's driven by a few big things. The biggest one that they identified was affordable natural gas, which 10 years ago, none of us thought was going to happen. I and mean, we didn't know that the, the shale revolution was going to happen as big as it did. Natural gas right now is basically cleaning the clock of every other resource that's out there because the gas is is so affordable. There are other things that are happening at the same time in terms of different government interventions, both at the state and federal level, that play a part as well. But the, the end, and then the third thing is technology uh, is, is coming in and providing all different ways of producing energy that we never thought would be available either. We couldn't necessarily predict. And so all these things coming together is changing the nature of the grid a lot. And so the report highlights these things, and it, it doesn't come up with specific solutions to say this is what you have to do, um, but it raises issues of concern and then turns it over to other policymakers, whether it's, whether it's FERC or whether it's, a, it's at the state level, and says, okay, these are things we're worried about. You need to think about this. I, I think maybe at this point the, the coal people and, and, and maybe even the, the nuclear people were, were exuberant just at this point to hear that they weren't the enemy <laughs> anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think maybe they're, they're, they're just glad to have it acknowledged that they're still an important part of the mix, which I think maybe has, has been something that, that's been missing for a while. Uh, first of all, I want to talk yeah. about natural gas because that's, that's something we hear a lot from the environmentalists because the coal people say, well, you know, we're, we're putting too much wind and too much solar, these intermittent power, and that's – you know, we're giving them priority, and that's hurting coal. And so the rebuttal from the environmental left is, well, no, it's the free market because natural gas is cheaper, and we found so much more of it. And so that's what's cleaning coal's clock, and it's sort of hard to rebut that. But I've always thought, I mean, to me, natural gas production is, is tied very closely in a lot of ways to oil production, which can be very, very volatile. And I, I know we're, we're sort of with, with the shale revolution with both oil and gas. We're sort of in unexplored territory with some of this. But – do we put ourselves at risk by make, becoming more so much more dependent on on natural gas? It really is a new time in natural gas, and and the reason for it is in the old days, natural gas production was really much more of a wildcatting activity, and today, because it's more of a manufacturing activity, we know where the gas formations are and at what price you can go in and get the the shale gas. Now it's in North Dakota it's tied to oil production because the gas just comes along with the oil, but those those people who are involved in hydrofracking are are really going after the oil first. There are a lot of other plays across the US they're really gas only plays and they're just going after the gas um, especially as you look at the east so you're Pennsylvania Ohio um, and some of the the regions in the south and southwest um, so it, it does seem that there's something different about this particular play we've had a very long term of pretty stable natural gas supplies now gas Prices can go up and they can go down. There's no doubt about it. But the market dynamics probably have changed quite a bit. I think what was what was notable about this report was that it, it was so balanced and that it identified a number of things that are affecting the grid and probably candidly most specifically nuclear and coal operators. And 
They said, number one, the big thing is gas, because the markets and what generators get paid are based off uh, uh, what people are willing to run for and what generators are willing to, to run, and at what price. And gas right now is setting the clearing price a, a large amount of time. But then it also acknowledged that government does have an impact. So um, things like some of the environmental regulations, the MATS, not to get too technical, but the mercury and air toxic standards uh, rules that the the federal government promulgated during the Obama administration, this report acknowledges had a big impact. The year that that regulation went into effect was the year that you had a huge jump in the number of, of coal plant retirements. Um, State-level renewable portfolio mandates. Um, North Dakota doesn't have one. Um, other states in the region do. And these these grids are regionally operated, so things that happen in other states will have an impact on what the market clearing price is in North Dakota and for all generators in well, the, I, the region. I wanted, so the, to, yeah. I, I wanted to make that point because the, the, the DOE report, I, I mean, to me, overall, I, I, I guess sort of taking a 30,000-foot view of it, seemed to be a call to a return almost to a, a science-based calculation on this as opposed to, to maybe some of the politics that we've injected into this. Because that that's what I see is, is political decisions when you have politicians out and sort of dictating we're going to have X percentage of wind or we're going to have X percentage of solar because politically we think that's the right that's the right number. And it's not really based on a calculation, is this what's right for the power grid, right? Because what the coal guys are telling me is they're saying, well, you know, the, the, the wind guys, they get, you know, they can sell their, their power at, at zero cost sometimes, but yet we have to be ready and, and able to, if the wind's not blowing, provide all the energy that the grid needs, right? So the coal guys are saying, well, it's not fair because wind has this sort of political most favored status, but yet we're still expected to be here and be the base load power. Is, is there a call here to, to move away from that and, and, and to try to say, you know, listen, we, we do need a diverse mixture here? But we need to make sure that, that that everybody's on a level playing field. There's sort of there's kind of two answers to that. Number one is the, these are regional markets. So from a standpoint of what generators get told to run at what specific times, that is based strictly on least cost available resource. So at any given time, the the unit that sets what everybody gets paid is is based on what's the, the cheapest units to run. And that's where the natural gas impact has such an impact on every operator, not just coal. Typically, wind units will just run at whatever price is the market price because they have zero fuel costs. So they just kind of ride along and get paid whatever the what they call the market clearing price is, which is usually natural gas. Now, the, the second part of the question, which is related to these portfolio mandates, is something that the, the DOE report pretty clearly identified. They said, if you look at what's impacting the grid, gas prices are number one. And then they said, number two, government interventions do have an impact. And then they want a, a layer lower than that. And they said, amongst the government interventions that are out there, the the thing that seems to be having the most impact in terms of how the grid is being shaped is state-level renewable portfolio mandates. So um, the federal government doesn't have a portfolio standard, doesn't say there has to be this much solar, this much hydro, this much coal, this much gas, this much wind. Um, certain states do. Uh, as I said, North Dakota is not one of them. South Dakota is not one of them. I think they have sort of a, both states, if I remember correctly, if this is still right, um, in the case of South Dakota, just have a, um, a I think North a Dakota, I don't know about South Dakota. I know North Dakota, we had like a, 
we had like a suggestion, which yeah, we exceeded. Yeah, it's a goal. I, I, it was ten percent the last time I checked. I don't know if it's yeah, bumped I think up. We I think South Dakota's was ago. the same. I think um, we were ten percent and we exceeded it. I, I, Montana has yeah. a mandate and Minnesota has a mandate. Right. So the mandates, um, which are prevalent in certain other parts of the country, um, Minnesota, I'm sure, has one. They did, uh, and it's been going up, um, although I can't remember the exact level. Um, those do have a dramatic impact because what they say is uh, utility, you simply have to go out and procure, regardless of the cost, a certain amount of power from X type of, of generation. And that's what we've seen with the Public Service Commission here in North Dakota. Your old job is, uh, you know, our, our commissioners fighting off rate increases from power companies that want to increase rates on North Dakota customers to pay for these mandates in other states. And, and our regulators here saying, oh, no, uh, that's not how that's going to work. But how, how, how exactly, I mean, what's the solution? I mean, how, how do we go forward so that we make sure that, I mean, because I, I think at the end of the day what most people want is, A, they want the the furnace to come on when it's supposed to come on, and they want the air conditioning to be on, and they want the lights to work. And B, they don't they want their bills to be reasonable for for that service. I mean, those are the two. I mean, basically, the rest of it, I I don't know that the average North American cares that much. They just want the stuff to work. So, how do we how, how do we make sure that this stuff's going to work, and we're not going to run into problems because we've you know we have these state mandates and, and and really what what i perceive is as politics sort of injected into this equation how do we protect ourselves from that yeah and and you're seeing some of these state politics coming out in all sorts of ways and i mean it's not just renewables anymore there are parts of the country that where you have states new york and illinois are two examples that are heavily subsidizing nuclear units now because the nuclear units can't compete in the marketplace so i mean if if you were looking at the tony clark answer what it would be is you have the federal level which oversees the wholesale electric electricity markets and and I think the federal government should be as fuel neutral as possible. So try to set up the rules so that they're fuel neutral from a, a national standpoint. Reaffirm a commitment to this idea of least cost dispatch where the, the unit that can most cheaply provide the power is the one that is the one that runs. And then the thing that makes it really complicated is that you have the second layer of government, which is state government, and states have a lot of authority over the electricity sector that the federal government um, doesn't have. And so you've got individual states that are going out setting their state policies, and I, th I think what you try to do is, to the degree of federal regulators who set up a fed uh, uh, an interstate wholesale electricity market, you try to make sure that the choices that are made by policy leaders in one particular state are walled off and are paid for by the people in that state and not spread across uh, a greater region of the country and, and foisted upon other citizens who may not have had any sort of real choice in setting that that policy. Well, Tony, I thank you for your time. It's a complicated issue, but it's an important one because, again, we all like it when the air conditioning works. <laughs> so, yeah, that's exactly right. Good talking with you, Rob. Yeah, thank you, Tony. Appreciate it. We'll wrap the show up right after this. 701-293-9000. If you want to join in, 888-970-9329. You're listening to The Rob Report on 970 WDAY AM and 93.1 FM. Don't go away. Welcome back. Rob Report on 970-WDAY. Email talk at WDAY.com, 701-293-9000, I know talking about the power grid is probably not that exciting, but here's here's the thing about 
things like energy, right? Very, very technical areas of regulation and, and politics. Because what, what happens is, you know, most of us, I, I think, have very, very specific goals when it comes to energy, right? We want the lights to work. We want the air conditioning to work, right? We want, we don't want the gas station to run out of fuel. I mean, we, we just want to have this stuff. But the problem is, is the politicians get involved and they decide, you know, we got to push ethanol. We got to push wind. We got to push solar. And it creates problems, real problems. We got Mary waiting on hold. Mary, go ahead. What's up? Good morning. I'm calling about um, the Northport Hornbacker store and warning people about the horrible conditions that are there. They're under construction. It's a fire trap. I've talked to the fire inspector. I've talked to the city inspectors. Wait, okay, so we're, we're talking about what do you said, Hornbachers? Yes, in Northport. Okay, and, and you're saying, well, you, you, you have a problem. What, well, what did you see when you went there? Uh, one entry for entering and exiting the store, and outside that door were the shopping carts. So people are trying to get their shopping carts and get in and get out, and they're banging into each other. And half the store, it looks like half the store is shut down. There's no indication that there's any safety exits. If a fire should break out for huh. all that's going on, and, in and, there, and you've, it you've, looks you've contacted you've you've contacted and then the appropriate I wonder about Mary food contamination for the bakery. Mary, the- all right, well, Mary, I I I I don't know why you're calling our show about this today. You you contacted the proper authorities. I have. Okay. Have you ever spent any time in like the northeast part of the country, like Massachusetts, Maine? I'm from there. Yes. Yeah. All right. It sounds like it. You can certainly tell. Well, I hope I hope the proper authorities take care of that for you. Uh, thanks for calling in with your concern. I appreciate it, Mary. Seven zero one two nine three nine thousand eight 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 nine seven zero nine three two nine. Email talk at wday dot com. No, she sounded like she was from Boston. Cats. I can't. Shopping cats. The, the shopping cats. We, we do it. We do it all here on this show. We we just take care of a uh, hornbacker yeah. issues. I mean, yeah. we're all over the place. To be clear, I don't I don't know what's going on at Hornbachers. I'm, Nor I'm not do gonna, I. That's that that caller uh, certainly had her point of view. Uh, if there's an issue there, I'm I'm sure the proper authorities are going to look into it and and take care of that. So uh, I don't I don't know anything. And and if there's any concern, our, our friends at Hornbachers, I'm sure will will hopefully take care of that. Um, so yeah, I I don't know, Nolan. I I don't like it when politicians jump into. I, I think I think we create we create problems for ourselves when we start pursuing very very fundamental issues, right? I mean, energy is pretty fundamental to our way of life. Our computers don't work without it. You know, the house doesn't stay cool without it. I, I think if we start injecting political priorities in, in into those questions, where we create a lot of problems for ourselves, or even pushing like like you said, pushing certain types of energy, you know, wind and solar, especially in this area. And from yeah. what I read in that kind of what I read in that report was that kind of those renewables are taking sort of a backseat to, you know, the natural gases and the coals that Tony was talking about. Yeah. Um, well, well not think- even that they're taking a backseat. It's, it's that some of the state level mandates for them are, are creating havoc because now we're trying to dispatch this energy and we've got a mandate and we've got to use a certain amount of this. And you know what? I, I think we ought to just let all the different energy sources compete and the best ones. Uh, we'll use the best ones that are the most reliable and the cheapest. Honestly, the way to go. All right, Jay Thomas Show coming up next. You can always catch me here 1 to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday or 24 hours a day, seven days a week at sayanythingblog.com, North Dakota's most popular political blog. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again.